going to be I was going to be covering about five verses, but then when I got to putting together my PowerPoint, I said, "Man, this is I'm never going to get through all that." So I had to cut it down to uh, one verse, and so we're going to focus in really on on the cost of discipleship. And uh, this title is an allusion to a book you may have heard of by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he uh, he really talks about the the cost of discipleship and how the church gravitates toward what he calls cheap grace. Christianity, he says in that book, he says, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this morning, this is probably one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament to me. Uh, Jesus sets a super high bar for what he expects from his disciples. And so expect a challenging word from the, the scripture this morning. Uh, but I also want you to know that, uh, that this is a, a discipleship is a process and there is not one of us who has arrived. So maybe we could, last week we talked about discipleship being two things. Does anybody, um, the teacher now is going to test. Last, last week we said that discipleship is, uh, Something centered, Jesus Jesus centered, and we said that discipleship is something focused, fishing Fishing focused. Okay, and really, those things together, what they really mean is that discipleship is about orienting our lives around Jesus Christ. That we become, uh, our, our purpose in life becomes about knowing Him, imitating him, following him in discipleship, and in pursuing his purposes. His Whatever his priorities are, whatever his agenda is, taking those and making them our own. And so it, it is progressive. Um, it is a, if you, a few, well, it's been a while now, but uh, when I preached on biblical giving, we talked about how Jesus, in, in much of his teaching, more than, he didn't come to, he didn't come to bring us a new law, but he came to cast an ideal. He came to cast a vision for what a disciple should be. And so I want you to keep that in mind because I don't, I don't want you to get burdened down with this challenge. I want you to, to, to know that God is for you. He's given you his Holy Spirit to spur you on and encourage you to be who Christ has made you to be. And so... Um, but like I say, we're, discipleship is this process of orienting our lives around the life of Jesus Christ and His purposes. And it is a process. When we are born, we are born self-centered. That is, it is inherent to our nature to be self-centered. We got families, three families with newborns. Can you, can you testify that babies are inherently self-centered? I bet. I'm willing to bet that Justice didn't wake up this morning and roll over and say, Daddy, you look tired. Have you been sleeping well? It did. Uh-huh. Oh, Mom, you've been sleeping well. Uh, I, I, I bet he, he doesn't say, Mom, have you, been, have you been having enough time with the Lord? You know, if you can just get me a bottle, I bet I can handle myself pretty well. Get me a pamper, get me a bottle, and I can, you, can, you have some time for yourself. You need some rest. Right? Babies don't say that. Babies don't do that. Babies have no awareness of your needs. They are only aware of their needs. 
and we don't, and nobody is mad at their babies for being self-centered, right? Nobody looks down at a baby for being self-centered because it's normal. It's very normal for a baby to be self-centered. It's, it's all they know. That's all they're aware of is themselves and their own needs. But as the baby grows, we have an expectation that the baby will become more others-focused, that the baby, if it's developing normally, it will become more and more aware of the needs of other people and will learn to put itself second in order to prefer others more. So, so normal human development should produce people that are something like that. Now, the Bible teaches that because we have this inherently sinful nature, people who are in sin, people who have not had a encounter with Christ, people who have not received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ and been transformed, they are, they are still basically operating out of that self-centered nature. And what the Bible teaches about the new birth is that when we are born again, we begin this process of becoming the human beings that God intended us to be. So whatever capacity we have for empathy as unbelievers, when we are born again, the Bible teaches that that capacity for empathy, that capacity for being others-centered and others-focused should be expanding. And so it is a, it's a, so I'm saying all this just to say that it's a process. And Jesus has given us a high bar, a target on the wall for us to walk toward. And with that, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at the text. Heavenly Father, would you be with us now? God, would you help me um, to speak clearly? God, to communicate clearly? And would you work in the hearts of every person present to hear just the words, God, that you have for them? Um, and pray that you'd be glorified in this time. Make us more like Jesus uh, because of the word that we'll hear today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to pull in a couple of verses just so you can get the context. I've highlighted the pronouns in this text as we go through because what I want you to see is that the basic issue in question is a, is a, is a question about will you orient your life around yourself or will you orient your life around Jesus Christ? So pay attention to the pronouns as we go. And he was saying to them all, so Jesus speaking to this crowd of people, and he's speaking to all, so this is, this is inclusive, it applies to everyone who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not for the apostles, this high bar is not just for leaders of the church, church planners, whatever, it is for every single person who, who seeks to follow Christ. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So the big idea, being a disciple of Jesus means wholehearted commitment to Him that demands relinquishing our self-entitlements. I know that's, that's a big word, but it's, it's an important word I think we need to know in our culture. And embracing suffering as part of the normal Christian experience. And so... Uh, 
it's helpful to understand the context here. Chapter nine of Luke's gospel is a is a is a, is a hinge chapter. Uh, the the book turns on it. So so Jesus is um, in the section just before this. Jesus is with his disciples and he's asking them, "Who do people say that I am?" And they're giving him all these various answers. And he says, "But who do you say that I am?" And then Peter makes his famous confession. You are the Christ of God. You are, you are God's Messiah. And meaning, and we talked about this last week, for Jesus to be God's Messiah means that he was the one that was appointed to rule over the nations, ultimately. And so the disciples and everybody else who believed Jesus was the Messiah, what they mistakenly understood about Jesus was that he was coming to establish this kingdom now. And they, they were expecting him to be a warrior king who was going to gather an army, cast off the Roman oppressors, and establish a, a nation for Israel once again. But Jesus didn't come for that the first time. He came meek and lowly to give his life as a ransom to, to redeem the people of Israel, to redeem a people for God's possession, which would be the people who turn to Christ in faith from the nation of Israel and people who turn to Christ in faith from all the nations. And so... So, so this is what it meant for him to be Christ Messiah. So he, when, when Peter confesses this, when he identifies who Jesus is, Jesus says, he says he strictly warned them not to tell anyone. But he said, the son of man, he said, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer there. The, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, the people who should have most recognized Jesus, they're going to reject me. And they're going to mock me and they're going to kill me. And then after three days, I'm going to rise again. And this still somehow, while it seems plain to us from our perspective, the disciples over and over again, they seem to not really understand what he's saying. And so, so it's right after he says this, he makes this prediction about his own suffering that he makes this really big statement. If anyone wishes to come after me, because where I'm going is to the cross. Where I'm going is to a place of suffering. He, he admits he's the Messiah. He doesn't, when Peter confesses he's Messiah, he doesn't deny it. He says, yeah, I am. And I'm on my way to suffer. So he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to reorient your life because right now, all you're thinking about is making a living and raising kids and, and trying to be a good person according to the, the authority, the cultural authorities in your life. He said, but if you want to follow me, you're going to have to reorient your life and center it around me. And you're going to have to follow me down this path of suffering. So Jesus' call to discipleship is, I think the best word for it, is a call to allegiance, which fits with that picture of him as the Messiah. He's God's ruler. He's God's leader. So, so being a disciple of Jesus means a wholehearted commitment to him that demands relinquishing our self-entitlements and embracing suffering as part of the normal Christian life. Now, Luke's gospel gives us, toward the end, he's going to give us two examples of disciples. One of those is Judas Iscariot, and one of those is Simon Peter. And both of these guys, what do they have in common? You guys talk to me. They both fail. They both blow it. They both deny Jesus. And yet Judas is uh, presented as a negative example of one who for, for profit 
gave Jesus up, and he's a guy that does not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's shown as a negative example of discipleship, while Simon Peter, even though he blows it so spectacularly, with curses, he denies three times that he knows Jesus Christ. At the end, we find Jesus receiving uh, him back. In John's gospel, we see them eating together, eating breakfast on the beach. And Jesus is restoring him to his place of leadership. So the difference between Judas and between Peter lies in this, this idea of discipleship being a process. Jesus is not looking for perfection, but he is looking for a heart. And by heart, I don't just mean your warm fuzzies. I mean that core, central part of you from where you make decisions about life. The part of you that is convinced about truth, the part of you that knows what's right, and the part of you that wants to do what's right. That part of you is turned toward Jesus Christ, is centered around Jesus Christ, and you will have moments of failure. But for those whose hearts are oriented on Jesus, he prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And you will be restored. You will, your countenance will be lifted up. He will restore the joy of your salvation. Uh, so, that's a, that's a long introduction. You see why I had to cut down to one verse? So, let's dive in. First, with denial of self. So, by denial of self, we're talking about relinquishing self-entitlement for the sake of Relinquishing self-entitlement for the sake of God and others is the hallmark of Christian maturity. So uh, in Luke 9.23, he says, He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, the first requirement is that he deny himself. Denial of self is different than self-denial. When I say self-denial, a lot of us think of uh, just abstaining from something that we have a legitimate right to. Um, so... First thing that pops into my mind probably is fasting, self-denial. I, I got food in my house. I could access it, but I, if I'm fasting, I choose not to, right? I'm voluntarily choosing not to. Well, that is self-denial, but it is not denial of self. Denial of self is more fundamental. This is a quote from uh, Daryl Eldridge quoting Merrill Tinney. He says, Commitment to Christ requires a denial of self, which is different from self-denial. It consists not simply in the abandonment of something that one cherishes, but rather in the repudiation of his right to cherish it. Denial of self is more fundamental because it's not just uh, denying, in the case of fasting as an example, it's not just denying myself food, but it is acknowledging that I'm not entitled to my next meal and that every good meal that I enjoy comes from the hand of God. And so self-denial as a practice, like fasting as a practice or a discipline, we recommend it because that practice of self-denial done properly and in the right spirit, it cultivates denial of self. It cultivates a heart that recognizes that everything that I enjoy comes from the hand of God. I'm not entitled to it and God could take it away at any time. It humbles me. It puts me low under a sovereign and powerful God. I believe that the denial of self was what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 4 when he talks about his uh, secret of contentment. He says, not that I speak from want. And he's talking about a gift that the Philippians had sent to him. He said, he said, I'm really thankful for the gift. He said, but I'm not speaking from want, 
For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So self-denial would be like just not eating, but denial of self is being joyful in the Lord when you have no food to eat. Does that make sense? When you don't, you're not entitled to a meal. So there, there are, so just to, I guess to, to put the rubber to the road, if you're in your workplace, if things get hectic and you're not able to eat lunch, do you get hangry? Are you, are you grumpy toward people? And maybe if someone else caused you to miss lunch, are you kind of passive aggressive toward them? Are you letting them, uh, know that you're not happy that you didn't get to take your lunch? I mean, that's such a simple thing, but I know what's up. I know we're, we're being real. All right. So, uh, so Paul says that if you have a heart oriented around God, if you have a heart submitted to God in discipleship, you can be in want and you can still be full of the joy of the Lord. And so he says, even though, and he was, he, he was in want when he received this gift from Philippians and, and he was thankful for it, but he, so he was able to rejoice when he had it. He was able to rejoice when he didn't. So this is, and this goes back to what I mean. So if, uh, for an unbeliever, someone who has not been born again by the Holy Spirit, I'm arguing that that they would have less of a capacity to to have joy in the midst of want. But when we become a believer, God increases our capacity to have joy in the midst of want, to have joy when circumstances are not awesome. That's part of our witness, part of our credibility that he's that he's looking for. Denial of self. Here's another example. 1 Corinthians 9:19, Paul says, "For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So he says, my goal is to be fishing focused. My goal is to bring people to know Jesus Christ. And even though I'm free from all people, I'm not indebted to anybody. I don't have to do this. He said, I make myself a slave to all. I serve everybody because I want to win them to Christ. So here's another question. And this is a good uh, workplace also uh, scenario. Uh, when you somebody gives you something to do at work that you don't think fits into your job description, do you feel imposed upon? And do you get grumpy? And do you let them know that you feel imposed upon? Self-denial of self is different than self-denial because denial of self is a heart that has joy. When, when you get your boss gives you something to do that you don't think fits in your job description, and, and by the way, maybe it really doesn't fit in your job description, Maybe your boss is showing preferential treatment to somebody else and they're giving you their work to do. So there, the situation could be that you're legitimately being mistreated. But God's promise is that by His Holy Spirit, He will give you the grace to have joy even in the midst of mistreatment. Right? So it doesn't mean that it's not wrong. It just means that God is greater. God is bigger and He's greater than any of our circumstances. And so uh, we persevere in those things. Okay. First Peter 2.23. Last, last example here. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. 
Uh, and Peter points to Jesus as the ultimate example of suffering. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Denial of self means increasing our capacity to trust God when we're being mistreated. So that's what we're progressively working on. So it's not just, I, I think the common experience for most of us is that we, when we're mistreated, we blow up in the moment, and then later we get convicted, and we're like, oh, but now i got, now I got to go ask forgiveness. You know, and sometimes, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But we're more prone to blow it and then go ask forgiveness. But what Jesus is calling to us to is this increased capacity for uh, entrusting ourselves to God in the moment of mistreatment where we trust God to be our advocate, where we trust God to bring justice for us, and we don't take justice for ourselves. And this increases, and you know, and we live in a, a culture right now, you know, there's, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of sensitivity to issues of social justice. And I think, I think that's right. Do you know, you will have more credibility to speak up for the rights of others when you're known as a person who does not demand their own rights, you will have more credibility to speak up for the rights of others when it comes to social justice issues if you're known as a person who is not always demanding their own rights. If you're a person who's always squawking about your rights, when when a real issue comes up, an important issue that you try to speak to, you won't have, you'll be like the, the little boy that cried wolf. People are so used to hearing you nag that they will tune you out. And so we've got to make sure that, that, that we, just like Jesus, that we're willing to lay down our own personal rights and suffer, but we're willing to be a voice for the voiceless and people who need us to speak up on their behalf. Does that make sense? So we're not spineless. We're not pushovers. We're not inviting people to walk over us. We are voluntarily laying down my rights but being prepared to speak up for justice and for the rights of others. And so the other side of denial of self, two things. So that relinquishing self-entitlement, but then also this loving the world for Jesus' sake. I really wrestled with what to call this. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about how we cannot rightly relate to things in the world unless we surrender them to Jesus Christ. So all the good gifts of God that you receive, if you try to love them for their own sake, and this includes material goods, it includes uh, relationships, whether it's romantic relationships, uh, family relationships, if you try to, to love those things for their own sake, they become idols. And so the challenge of Jesus is that we should lay down every good gift that God gives us. We lay it down at his feet. And the, the picture that Bonhoeffer paints is that when we lay it down at his feet, and he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham went up the hill with Isaac. He laid Isaac on the wood. He raised the knife to slay his son because God told him to and only because God told him to. And God himself provided a sacrifice to replace, a substitute to replace Isaac. And he received his son back. And so Bonhoeffer says, in the same way, we have to receive back 
the good gifts that we that we surrender to God. And it's only after we've given them up and received them back that we're able to love them rightly because we love them for Jesus' sake. We love them for the glory of God. This has been such a helpful thing for me for one, just as a diagnostic for exploring what are the idols in my life? And we're going to talk about some of those questions, uh, some diagnostic questions at the end. But what is it that you're most afraid of losing? And are you willing to lay those things down? And, and I, I think this applies even to family relationships. I had, uh, I, I had a, a, a woman tell me one time, she said, she said, Mike, we were talking about worry and anxiety and, and really just uh, obsessing about a child. And, and she said, Mike, you're not a mother. And she said, and, and because you're not a mother, you simply cannot understand what a mother feels. Okay, so mothers, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want you to hear this with love. Jesus was not a mother, and he said worry is a sin. To, to, to have anxiety and despair over your children is a sin. So as a person who's walking with God, with a whole indwelling Holy Spirit, God's promise, he's faithful, he will give you... He will give you the grace. Uh, he will expand your capacity to walk in trust and belief, to trust those, those children that God has given to you. He will give you the grace to entrust them to Him. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to have anxiety. Um, and so this applies to all of our relationships, romantic relationships. Man, I see romantic relationships all the time become idols. And so, so only when we lay that thing down... And, and really what's going on, the other analogy that we use around here is holding things with open hands. And I think that's the same idea that Bonhoeffer is talking about. When God gives us a gift, we hold it with open hands. And we, we, we live with the daily realization that he can take that gift from us at any time. And he is, has every right to do so if he so chooses. And we will trust him with whatever he chooses to do. Jesus loves you. <laughs> he, he is for you. He is for you. And it's, it's a it's a high it's a high bar, and we're all in, in in process toward that. And and many of us will will uh, fail in these things. We we will give in to anxiety. We will give in to despair at different moments. But the 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 upward call of Jesus Christ is is we press on toward, like Paul talked about. And so I'm I'm a fellow traveler with you. Okay, secondly, take up your cross and follow me. Suffering for Jesus should be the normal expectation of every Christian. And the way that I'm going to frame this, I'm even going to go a step further. I'm going to say that suffering for Jesus should be the normal experience of every Christian. I would say physical suffering, like persecution, rejection, like people, Christians in the Middle East and in North Africa are experiencing that may not be the normal experience of every Christian. I think it should be the normal expectation of every Christian that we would suffer for Jesus that way. But it may not be the normal experience of every Christian by the grace of God, that he doesn't make us all go through that. But there are different kinds of suffering, and that's actually what we want to talk about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, he says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this is this statement is at the heart of what Bonhoeffer means when he's talking about cheap grace. He said if you can if you think that you can have Christ, that you can follow Christ without going through this process of dying to yourself, you are deceived. Christianity 
without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. If you are Christ's, you're following him in discipleship and you're learning how to be conformed to his image. So the first kind of dying would be dying to sin. When we take up our cross, and do I need, I think everybody kind of knows just from your exposure to the gospel. Maybe not. I'll explain this. Uh, the cross is an image of death. And there is, there is no other reference for it in the first century. Uh, it was a type of execution that was used by the Roman government. It was pretty common, uh, but it was used mainly for enemies of the state. And so, if you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus takes up his cross, he has to carry it outside the city. And he carries it down the street, and there are people spitting on him and mocking him the whole way. The justice system included the whole community. Everybody came out to spit on you and tell you how bad you were. And then you walked out the city gates carrying your own cross, not the whole thing, but the cross beam that you would be impaled upon. And so they take you out, crucify you, and and set you up by the city gate so that people going in and out get the message that this is what happens to enemies of the state. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he has death in mind. It is figurative, though. He's talking about a heart commitment that follows all the way to the extent of death. So it doesn't have to be death, but it goes that far. Dying to sin, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is from Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. We're going to look at several verses here. I want you to see how prolific this crucifixion language is in the New Testament. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So so Paul says that you, as an unbeliever, before you put your faith in Christ, you had, you were enmeshed with sin. You had an organic relationship with sin that was inseparable from you. And he says there's something that happened when you put your faith in Christ, when you became united with him. We, You know, a lot of times we talk about you have his resurrection life but you also got his crucifixion death. And his crucifixion death broke the power of sin over your life. And so there has been a decisive break between you and the power of sin in your life. But he says that this, even though it's something that has decisively been done, he'll go on to say, therefore reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. So there's this process in discipleship of walking out in reality what Jesus has made true spiritually. He's broken the power of sin, so now we have to unlearn some old behaviors and learn some new behaviors and learn to walk out this newness of life. But our self, our old self was crucified with him. This progressive idea Peter brings out, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He says, those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. And so what I'm arguing is that your you should be experiencing suffering if you are struggling against sin in your life. 
And if you have had any significant victories over sin in your Christian life, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's how you got there. That's how you got victory was in pressing into God and praying and crying out and seeking victory in Him, right? So it's this progressive process. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I, yeah, it, like I say, if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. But, but there is a, in that moment of temptation, when you desire something sinful and you put it down, there is a, there is something in you that just, ah, oh, man, I gotta put that thing down. And it's, uh, it's painful. It's a struggle, right? It's a struggle with sin. Daryl Eldridge says, a disciple learns that you cannot say no unless there is a bigger yes burning deep within you. And so our struggle with sin, our ability to conquer sin, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's also driven by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit compels us. He produces this burning desire to be like Jesus, this desire to, to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the Bible teaches that the more that you seek Christ in worship, the brighter that fire will burn. It's one of the reasons that worship is a core value here. We want people to encounter God in worship because it's encountering God in worship that ignites this fire that compels us toward life change. A disciple learns you cannot say no unless there's a bigger yes burning deep within you. So dying to sin, and then secondly, dying to self. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So again, there's this idea when he talks about being crucified with Christ, there's this idea of a decisive break in the same way that what Jesus accomplished for us accomplished a decisive break with the power of sin. There's been a decisive break with my self-centeredness. He says, because of what Christ has done, because of this because I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live. It's no longer me who determines my priorities. It's no longer me who sets the agenda. But I'm looking to Jesus Christ to find out what it is that I should be about. I find my identity in Him. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And so when Paul says, I live by faith, he does mean I live by trust, believing in God. But he, he means that that trust that I have in God, it is, it's reflected in the life that I live, right? So it's not just head knowledge, believing, but he said the life that I live, the walking out of my faith is rooted in my faith in the Son of God. Jerry Bridges writes, to live no longer for ourselves, but for him is the essence of discipleship. That's a true statement. If, if you are a follower of Christ and, and you still think that your life is about, uh, your plan, you, you don't have, you don't have a biblical vision of, of discipleship or what Jesus has called you to. Lastly, dying to the world. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So again, I won't belabor it, but there's this idea again of a decisive break. So before I was in Christ, I got my 
sense of value, my sense of identity from the world and from its affirmation of me. And now that I am in Christ, I've only got one person to please, and that's Jesus Christ. And this, this ties in with Bonhoeffer's idea as well. That because when we have, when we allow relationships to become idols, we're always looking to those relationships for our identity, validation, affirmation. But Jesus says that when you're in Christ, you've only got one person to please. Now it's interesting that like even in, with, with the workplace, Jesus calls us to be good, conscientious employees. If we're married, he calls us to be a loving, faithful spouse. And so being committed to Jesus and trying to be the person that Jesus created me to be results in me fulfilling those relational roles well, and hopefully I'll have good good relationships. But the, but the point is, is that when I love my wife, I don't love her for her sake. And I can't live in fear of her dissatisfaction with me. Otherwise, I can't faithfully follow Christ. I've got to first be fearful of Christ's dissatisfaction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I have this desire to be pleasing to Christ, right? And if I do that, then I ought to be pleasing her well. I'm oversimplifying it for sure. But uh, anybody who's married knows I'm oversimplifying it. But, uh, but our focus is on pleasing the Lord. And then, so finally, he says, take up your cross. He says, take up your cross, take up this instrument of death and follow me all the way to the point of death. And he says, but take this cross up daily and follow me. I don't want to bore you with the Greek, but the, the, the deny yourself, take up your cross are in a different tense than follow me. Follow me is in a present tense. And so the first two are kind of like, uh, snapshots. They're points in time. So, so deny yourself, take up your cross, but then he qualifies it with daily and follow me. And so the point is, it, what it means to follow Jesus, following Jesus emerges out of the daily practice of denying yourself, taking up your cross. So it's not just a third thing that you add on, but it's, it's how you would define following Jesus is that denial of self, taking up your cross daily. So these daily disciplines of inspecting our heart. Last verse, Jim Elliott, I love this. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We went on to read uh, in, the, in the subsequent verses after verse 23 how he says, the one who wants to save his life, he's going to lose it. As much as you may want to save your life, as much as you may want to hang on to it, you can't. Eventually, it's going to be ripped out of your hands. But he says, the one who loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will keep it to life eternal. And so this is the last idea that I want to give you is that whatever you have to lose for Jesus is worth it. He, he is the Messiah. He is going to establish a kingdom that has no end. And right now we're waiting on his return and waiting on him to, to finally consummate that kingdom. And so the reward of the disciple who follows him is everlasting. If you try to save your life, if you try to uh, live your life for yourself, whatever reward you have is going to end when you take your last breath. You with me? He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
in order to gain what he cannot lose. Application, deny yourself. It's not treat yourself. Deny yourself. What, what self-entitlements do you have that need to be renounced? Uh, what things do you need to let go of? Here's a diagnostic question. What really ticks you off? Uh, when, and, and these are, you know, so many little things. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, if that really ticks you off, brother, you got an entitlement. Maybe sister, but probably brother. You, you've got an entitlement. You've got a sense of self-importance that tells you that they shouldn't have gotten your way. What you're doing is more important than what they're doing. What people or things need to be laid down at Jesus' feet? Here's the other side of the deny yourself and your diagnostic question. What are you most afraid of losing? If there's anything uh, besides Jesus that you can't live without, you need to take that thing to the foot of the cross and lay it down at the foot of Jesus. And there are some things, let me tell you, there are some things that you will lay down at Jesus' feet and he will not give them back to you. And there are some things you lay down at Jesus' feet, you'll get back to you and and you will be better off and the thing that you love will be better off because you laid it down at Jesus' feet. But you've got to just give it away open-handedly to Jesus Christ and let him have it and and and, and die to that sense of entitlement that says I have to have it. Last, carrying your cross. Are you dying to sin? Are you in a struggle with sin? I, I was reading some statistics on discipleship. So they said uh, one in ten Christians say that they have no interest in pursuing spiritual growth. And when they ask that, that, that 10% of Christians why they were not interested in pursuing spiritual growth, uh, like 70% of them, so that's like three in five, uh, said that they are satisfied with where they are in their spiritually. They're satisfied. Some of us are complacent, if we're honest with ourselves, that we're, when I was in college, we used to have a, a joke. You know, we, had, we were in spiritual formation class and, and we had all these canned questions that we had to ask each other about our thought life and stuff. And so there's kind of this, this running joke where people would say, how's your, how, are you struggling with your thought life? And the other guy would say, well, I'm not, wouldn't say I'm struggling. So I think that's kind of where a lot of people are, where they've, they've made peace with their sin. Something has become a struggle that has overtaken them, and so they're, they're not really fighting the good fight anymore. They've kind of made peace with it. They've lost uh, what, what Piper calls the wartime mentality. So are you dying to sin? Are you engaging in the battle? Are you seeking God for victory? Do you believe that God is faithful and that he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but he'll provide a way of escape? Do you believe that, and are you pursuing that by faith to seek that way of escape? Are you dying to yourself? Are you are you consciously evaluating your priorities and your goals and asking hard questions about whether these goals are glorifying to God or are they just glorifying to you? And then finally, are you dying to the world? Um, or are you... James has got some hard, hard words for people who are her friends with the world. He says they're adulteresses. Um, if you make yourself a friend with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And by world, he means, he doesn't mean the people of the world, he means the world system. The world system that exalts itself against God. In American society, it would be like uh, progressive humanism, where man is all there is, this is all there is, we don't need God, we can govern ourselves, we, we know what's best. And religion is just a sickness. Um, so are you dying to the world? Are you 
Are you consciously limiting the influence of that worldview? So, so you need to you need to be engaging with the world, but you need to seek to be an influencer and not open yourself to that influence, that thought pattern. Did I mention that Jesus loves you? <laughs> he died for you. And He died for you. He didn't just die for you to die for you. He died for you because He wanted to make you His own. And He didn't want, He loves you just like you are, but He is, loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so His, His call, His, 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 His call of discipleship is a call for you to follow him to imitate him to walk in to walk in his footsteps and to and to walk in love toward one another uh i'm going to pray for us and if anybody needs prayer just uh feel free to raise your hand and but let me pray heavenly father god i, I uh thank you for this time together father i, I pray that uh your word would do its work god I, I pray that this challenge would not lay too heavily on anyone's heart Father, I pray that people would be encouraged and they would know that you're for them and that this is a high bar. But this is, this pursuit of this high bar is what sets us apart as your people. Um, and that you empower us by your spirit to, to pursue it and to achieve it progressively. And so I just pray, God, that you would fill us with humility, that you would fill us with a sincere desire. Uh, to pursue you with all that we are. God, that we would really press in and that, that we, out in the world where we live and where we work, God, that we would be marked as your people, as people who love you, people who love each other, and people who take seriously um, the call to follow you, that we're not hypocrites and we're not just playing games. So we ask in this time, Father, that you'd speak to hearts, that, that even now you'd put your finger on on specific things that people need to lay down, that people need to die to, God, even in my heart. Would you, would you do that now? Would you show us, would you give us vision and speak clearly to us? Holy Spirit, speak. Father, we ask that you would encounter us now in Jesus' name.